I want to preach from three different texts this morning. Really, they're the same idea, but from three different passages. The first is in the fifth chapter of the book of Romans. I want to read just verse 5. And the second, you can just kind of put your finger there and hold the place, is 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 1 through 3. And then I want to refer to the list of the fruit of the Spirit, which is in Galatians 5, beginning at verse 22. Now what I'd like for you to do this morning, I'd encourage you to um, get you a pencil or a pen and take some notes. This sermon is going to be a little uh, more technical than I normally do. When I said this morning... It's about as technical as I can get, and I got some laughter from some un, unnamed folks that play the piano and, and that kind of, kind of stuff. Uh, it is kind of technical, and um, I want you to kind of take some notes that'll help you. Now, my scholars here on the front in the center, they're my great note takers. They pass notes too, and that kind of thing. <laughs> If you're ready, I'll read verse 5 and understand that really this comes into a statement that is being made, so you'll need to, to catch the context of this statement. But it says, And hope does not disappoint because the love of God has been poured out within our hearts through the Holy Spirit who was given us are given to us. Now 1 Corinthians chapter 13. If I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but do not have love, I have become a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. And if I have the gift of prophecy and know all mysteries and all knowledge, and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. And if I give all my possessions to feed the poor, and if I deliver my body to be burned, but do not have love, it profits me nothing. And now just turn to that list of the fruit of the Spirit, verse 22 of Galatians 5. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, against such there is no law. In other words, the, fruits, the fruit of the Spirit is not the result of the keeping of the law. A few weeks ago, I began a series of messages on Christian growth because of a statement a man made that shook me to the root of my being. This was his statement. He said, the difference in your Christian growth, you and your Christian growth, and Adolf Hitler is negligible when you compare that to Jesus Christ. Now, I'm somewhat paranoid, but I think I know what he meant there. What I think he meant was that I'm more like Adolf Hitler than I am Jesus. Now that kind of shook me 
because I, after all, have been a Christian for over 30 years, and here was a man telling me in the group of religious leaders which I was a part, that when you compare my growth, my spiritual growth, to Jesus Christ, I'm more like Adolf Hitler. Now, I'm not sure that that's really true, but it did rock me. And it caused me to begin to investigate my own Christian growth, my own Christian life, to the point that I've come to this series of sermons out of my own searching and my own pilgrimage. Now, what do you believe to be this morning the distinctive characteristic of a Christian? What do you believe to be the distinguishing attribute or quality or characteristic of a Christian? Or what do you believe to be the distinguishing characteristic of God? Well, let me make the question a little easier, and you answer back. You respond. Fill in the blank. God is... I guess we all agree, at least it was unanimous with what you said, that the distinguishing characteristic of God is love. I think that's true for all of us. Well, it is also true that the distinguishing characteristic of a Christian is love. As a matter of fact, Jonathan Edwards says that love is the sum total of Christianity. You remember that song we used to sing? Um, we are one in the Spirit. We are one in the Lord. And we pray that someday our unity will be restored. And they'll know we are Christians by our love, by our love and they'll know we are Christians by our love. And Josephus, the Jewish historian, said that when the pagan world on the outside looked at the believers, at the Christians on the inside, they said, my, how they witnessed, my, how they gave, my, how they worshiped. No, the pagan world, when it looked on the inside and saw the believer, they said, my, how they loved one another. Now before I get into what I want to say this morning about the distinguishing characteristic of Christianity, I want to preface it with, a, with three introductory statements. I'm reminded of something Yogi Berra said one time, this man of many words and few are understandable. He said, when he's getting ready to make a speech at a banquet, he said, now before I start talking, I want to say something. So before I start talking, I want to say something. Before I start talking about love, I want to say three things. First of all, I want to remind us this morning of the difference between the gifts of the Spirit and the fruit of the Spirit. Now the gifts of the Spirit are those, are that particular talent or particular uh, ability that is God-given, that comes at the point of conversion to the believer, that enables him to perform a function in the church with ease, pleasure, and success. It is that particular ability endowed by God for a believer to perform a function within the body of Christ with ease, pleasure, and success. But the fruit of the Spirit is that which the Holy Spirit produces in the life of the believer. And you have the list of them here. And even though the New Testament gives tremendous emphasis to the gifts of the Spirit, and no church can function effectively in the world until its members, its body members, begin to fulfill and exercise their gifts, 
the great weight of the New Testament teaching is not on the side of the gifts of the Spirit. The emphasis of the New Testament is on the fruit of the Spirit, particularly the fruit of love. As a matter of fact, the Apostle Paul begins to list in 1 Corinthians 13 some of the gifts of the Spirit. The gift of faith, the gift of mercy, the gift of prophecy, and says that I can have these gifts of the Spirit, but if I do not have love, it profits me nothing. And the implication is it profits the church nothing. And it's interesting that he finishes his discussion in chapter 12 on the gifts of the Spirit and says, but desire a more excellent way. And he talks about the fruit of the Spirit, which is love. The second thing I want to say by way of introduction is that you and I are a part of a, a, a moral re re uh, revolution or moral evolution in our land. Now those of us who are over 40 are able to see that clearly, that there has been a shift in the moral values and mores and standards. If you're under 40 but over 30, you can see it through a glass darkly, and if you're under 30, you probably can't see it that well because there's not that much contrast. But those of us who are over 40 have seen a tremendous revolution, moral revolution in our time. Now that's not just preacher talk. Sociologists tell us that there was a time back years ago, back before they invented the wheel when I was born, back, back in the good old days, when there was a stigma attached to certain things like divorce and premarital sexual relationships, etc. That in the year 1910... The divorce rate was 10%. In 1948, it was 25%. And in the last 30 years, it has more than doubled. And we have seen a tremendous shift in the moral values of American life. Now, what has caused that? Now, I'd be presumptuous to try to tell you all the reasons that's caused it. I don't have all the answers. I don't even have all the questions. But I think one of the main reasons that has caused the moral revolution in our time is the example of the people we have lifted up and exalted, almost idolized as our heroes and heroines. For example, back in the 1940s, when there was this, this stigma attached to, to, to certain things practiced in the world, in the, in the world of entertainment, in that world within our world, those things were being practiced all the time. I mean, it wasn't uncommon for a, a movie star in 1940 to have four or five husbands and four, or a man to have four or five wives. And what was looked upon with abhorrence by the local community was accepted in the entertainment world. And there began to be a, a, a principle evolve, now watch this, that seems to excuse immorality by performance. Performance excuses immorality. It, it, you see, if you're a great entertainer, if you're a great athlete, it doesn't make, matter what you do in your private life, see. And that principle has kind of evolved into our time. Now you say, what in, in the world does that have to do with Christian love? It has this to do with it. There is a danger that that principle and that philosophy has crept over into the religious community so that the people that we lift up and exalt 
and make our leaders in, our, in the Christian community, in the religious community, are the people who have great skills in performance, the great preachers and the great teachers and the great evangelists. And these people we lift up and almost idolize. As a result of that, we do not celebrate the lives of the people who demonstrate the fruit of the Spirit. Let me tell you something. This church this morning, our congregation of people is filled with men and women who are almost ignored, who are manifesting and demonstrating tremendously gifts of uh, fruits of the Spirit, particularly the fruit of love. And we just ignore those people. We need to celebrate the lives of those who demonstrate the fruit of, of, of the Spirit, especially the fruit of love. For after all, it is by our fruit that we will ultimately be measured. Now watch this. I was, I was driving to West Texas last Saturday morning and I was listening to the radio and I was listening to Neil Sperry, this lawn and garden expert. I like that guy, that show. I was telling him this morning, that just gives you a clue as to how exciting my life is. You know, I, I, I love to listen to Neil Sperry and lawn and garden tips. One day we were, we, were, we were riding in the car and my son, I was listening to Neil Sperry and my son said, is that all there is on the radio? I mean, he wants some of that rock music. I was listening to Neil Sperry. Well, this guy called in on this, on this show and he said, I, I've, I've, I've bought this place and there's some, uh, some peach trees on it. He said, I don't know the variety of those peach trees. He said, how do you tell what kind of peach tree it is? He said, can you tell by the leaves or the size of the tree? And Neil Sperry said, no. He said, that, don't do that. He said, this spring when it produces fruit, he said, you take one of those peaches and you go down to the farmer's market in Dallas and those old guys down there, those old farmers, they'll tell you what kind of fruit tree you got, what kind of variety of peach tree you got. And then he said, listen to this, he said, you never judge a tree by its leaves or its size, you judge it by its fruit. I'm here to tell you that you do not judge Christianity by its performance. You judge it by its fruit, particularly by the fruit of love. And we need to celebrate the lives of men and women and follow their example who are able to allow the Holy Spirit to produce that fruit in their life. Third thing I want to say. I mean, this whole sermon this morning may be introduction, but that's okay. Third thing I want to say. is when you find in the Bible the concept of love, it's always, it, what I'm talking about is agape, that, that kind of love that's unique. Now there is phileo love, brotherly love, and there is erotic love, the physical attraction of one to another. But agape love is this God kind of love. It is this unique kind of love. And it is always or almost always in the active verb tense. It is more, more times a verb than it is a noun, so that it is more active than it is passive. It is not something you feel, it's something you do. And this agape love is in our heart because of the Holy Spirit. Now, if we could do an autopsy this morning on the being of a Christian and the being of a non-Christian, 
you would find, that is, if you took a scalpel and just could kind of cut across those intangibles and those invisibles, and you could really analyze the being of a Christian and the being of a non-Christian, you would find in the being of a Christian the reality of agape that you would not find in the non-Christian because the Christian has the Holy Spirit. Now, watch this. When the Holy Spirit acts upon your life to give you new birth, He doesn't just act upon you to change you. He does that, but He does more than that. He comes into you to indwell you. And when He comes in to indwell you, He brings love with Him. Jonathan Edwards said, The Spirit of God is the Spirit of love. And when the farmer enters the soul, He brings love with Him. So that if the Holy Spirit lives in you, you have all the love that God can bestow and that you can get. You're in error when you say, I don't have enough love for this or for that. Now with those things in, in introduction, let me ask two questions hurriedly. Stay right with me, please. I know this is technical, but you follow carefully. The first question is this. How does this love, if it is a power and a possession that is, that is reserved for the believer, how does it become relative in my life, my day-by-day -day life? How does it become operative there? How does it affect the way I live? Now, when I begin to preach on the matter of spiritual or Christian growth, I said that the critical issue is this, how do we get saved? How do we get saved? You have to settle that question first. That has always been the critical issue. It was why the Reformation was such a violent controversy. And Martin Luther said that everything else is trifle and everything else is peripheral to that critical issue. How do we get saved? And the conclusion of the Bible is that salvation is the work of grace. It is the work of God from beginning to end. It is not a combination of grace and works. It is the work of God. It is God's grace from beginning to end. But the question is, how does that grace of God affect my righteousness? Now watch this. In the Reformation, there were two opposing theologies. One theology taught and propagated the doctrine of infusion. Now watch this. The doctrine of infusion is the belief that God takes grace or Christ's merit and pours it in to the heart of the believer and that, in, that infused or poured out grace enables him to attain righteousness with God. But the reformer said, not so. That the merit of Christ is not infused in me or poured out in me so that I can attain righteousness. The merit of Christ is imputed to me, that is, charged to my account. And the best illustration of it is this. If you had a book this morning that contained the record of your life, your sin, your goodness. And God one day takes, looks at that book and He takes from your page, 
your sin and he transfers it and he turns the page and he finds Jesus' name and he puts your sin on Jesus' page. And that's great in itself, but that's not all he does. He takes the righteousness of Christ, the goodness that is on Jesus' page, and he transfers that and puts it on your page. That's imputed righteousness. It is God taking Jesus' righteousness and putting it on me and taking my sin and putting it on Him. That's imputed righteousness. And the reformers went to the other extreme and said that there is therefore no infusion, but there is. It is the infusion of love. And that's what Paul is talking about when he says that the love of God has been poured out into your heart by the Holy Spirit. Which leads me to the, to the deep theological conviction that the demonstration of love in my life and how I love others is dependent upon my relationship to the Holy Spirit of God. So that when I come into a right relationship and live in right relationship to the Holy Spirit, His love is just continually poured out in my experience. Second question. What are the characteristics? What are the symptoms, the signs of a mature love? In other words... If love is the distinguishing characteristic of Christianity, how can I know if I'm growing in love? There are three ways. I'm going to finish this tonight as to be continued type sermon. I want to get three and then I'll quit. First, listen to this. When I am growing in love, the first thing it does is that it disposes me, it changes the direction of my life to honor God. It causes me to honor Him, to praise Him, to adore Him. It creates in me a desire to worship and to glorify and to honor God. And it causes me to stand in, a, in, in awe of Him. Now, if there is a crisis in modern Christianity, I believe that it is not with regard to errancy or inerrancy. I believe the crisis with regard to modern Christianity is at the point of worship. We come to this place, but we do not encounter God here. More people are going to church than ever before, and there is this moral deterioration that's almost frightening. What does that mean? It means that we have lost our sense of an awe of God. Now, what is your prayer life like? What is your prayer life? Is it an endless list of requests and petitions where you just say all the time, Lord, I want this, Lord, I want that, Lord, give me this, Lord, give me that? Did you notice, if you'll notice this, when your love begins to mature and develop, your love for God and your love for others, you know what will happen to your prayer life? Most of that prayer time will be spent in your adoration and praise of God. You study the lives, the prayers of the great saints. You read the sermons of the great saints in the past. And in almost every sentence, at least in the heart of every one of those sermons and prayers, is this attitude of adoration and praise. The more you love God, the more you worship Him and you honor Him and you praise Him. Secondly, 
The evidence of a mature love gives credit to the Word of God. I mean, a person who has a mature love does not come to the Word of God with suspicion. Now, a person who tells me, I just love the Word of God, and he is suspicious about its veracity and its trustworthiness, th those are, that, that's a mutual contradiction. You can't have both. If you love with a mature love, you accept God's Word as trustworthy. You see, the more you love somebody, the more you're prone to believe their Word. Now watch. I was, I was at home with my, visiting my mother, and she's going to be listening to this tape. I was at home visiting my mother last Saturday, and she's 84 years old, and we were talking, and, and she said, Gerald, she said, I just want to tell you how proud I am of you. She said, you're just the finest young man, and, and, and said, you, you, were just a, you were just the greatest boy. And said, I just want to tell you how proud I am of you, and, and how, how thankful I am that you're my son, how much I love you. And I said, well, now, Mother... I feel kind of bad about how I treated you when I was a kid. And I, I just need to ask you forgiveness for the way I, I was, a rebel and a rowdy boy. And she said, you didn't, you, didn't do all, you didn't do that. She said, you never gave us a minute's trouble. She's getting pretty forgetful. She said, you, you, didn't give us a, you, you never gave us a minute's trouble. I said, oh, yeah, I did. And as we talked a little bit, she said, um, by the way, she said, who were your best friends when you were in high school? And I named a couple of guys. I won't call their names. They might be listening to this tape. And when I did, she said, oh, she said, those boys? She said, they're pretty wild, weren't they? She said, man, they gave their parents a lot of trouble. Now, those boys never did a thing I didn't do. I mean, wherever they were, I was. Whatever they did, I did. I mean, we were like two peas in a pod. Now, you know the difference? She loved me as her son. And her love for me made my word more believable to her, made my word more trustworthy. Now, listen, folks. It's one thing to believe in God. It's another thing to believe God. Now, there are a lot of people here this morning who believe in God but there's a great number of us who do not believe God. We don't take Him at His word. And when our love begins to develop and mature, and we mature as Christians in love, we're going to begin to come not only to God's word and believe it to be acceptable, but we're going, we're going to talk about that tonight, to accept man's word as believable. Third thing that love does, mature love, it disposes me or produces in me an acceptance of God's authority. An acceptance of God's authority. I'm not just talking about the authority of God over the universe. I'm talking about the authority of God over my life. The more I love God, the more my love grows and matures, the more I delight in God's authority over me. And there's a beautiful New Testament illustration of it. It has to do with marriage. Did you ever notice that? 
And the passage says, Wives, be submissive to your husbands as unto the Lord. And then he goes on to say, Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for it. And the implication of that teaching is this, that when someone loves another with a mature kind of love, it produces submission. So that when a person understands God's love for him and he responds to that love in a mature way, what does it do? It dissolves, it erases that arrogance that makes me want to have my own way and causes me to delight in the authority and the will of God. So that when a man refuses to do what God wants him to do, it's not because he can't, it's because he doesn't love. I want to wind this up by saying this. If Every Christian, Luther says, every Christian is called to be Christ to his neighbor. And if every Christian is called to be Christ, we ought to be Christ. Or let's quit being a Christian. And if the distinguishing characteristic of Christ is love, it behooves me to come to grips with this matter of love in my life. And the question is, Do you have mature Christian love? Pray with me. Our Father, we are thrilled, we're excited by new thoughts that come from your word and by new challenges that these new thoughts bring us. Help us today to come to grips with the reality of Our love, is it augmented, is it nurtured, or is it neglected? Has it died? Does it atrophy? And I pray this morning that you'll help us to begin in our heart a desire, a search, to know what it means to be like Jesus Christ, to demonstrate every characteristic of His life. Indeed, to so yield ourselves to the control of the Holy Spirit that He can produce in us fruit by which we are measured by the world. I pray this in Jesus' name and for His sake. Now I want you to look this way. We have three invitations this morning. I want you to consider God's will for you and these. The first invitation is for you to come and give your heart and life to Jesus Christ. The Holy Spirit comes to indwell you. He acts upon you to bring you birth, but He comes to indwell you to bring you life by your faith and trust in Him. Would you this morning be willing to trust your heart and life to Jesus Christ? Would you come this morning to place your life in the church, to serve God with folks who are on the pilgrimage of Christian walk and life, imperfect to be sure, searching the way to be sure? Or would you need to come this morning to say, I know in my own life I'm not bearing fruit. The fruit of love is not present. And I want to take that step publicly to begin to come to a place where God can take control of me, produce in me His life, His fruit. Would you do it? We're going to give you an opportunity to respond publicly. Only if God leads you to do that, while we stand to sing, you come.